Good morning. We will prevail over some technical setbacks. Please open your Bibles to Paul's letter to Timothy, the first Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4. We're going to read verses 6 through 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while godly training is of, while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise to the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all peoples, especially those who believe. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, as we read your word about the importance of striving and training ourselves for godliness, we just pray that you would give us a vision for that, that you would... Um, make our hearts aflame with passion for conformity to your image, pleasing you, to pursuing the knowledge of you in your word. So Lord, help us now to profit and learn from Paul's instruction to Timothy. Grow your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are a little past midway in our study of 1 Timothy. And so far, if you remember, um, Paul starts the letter in chapter 1, verse 3, by telling Timothy why it is that he left him there. And in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, we read, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And chapter 4 then began with sort of returning to this theme, and we saw last week the danger of asceticism. The danger of asceticism is... Any attempt to simply deny pleasure in this life, a harsh and severe treatment of the body, in the notion that doing so somehow is godly, somehow is um, earning cred with God. Um, many of the monastic traditions follow this assumption that a, an austere life devoid of the pleasures of this life um, is a good life. And so Paul has to soundly rebunk the ascetics. Um, and asceticism. They were forbidding marriage. They were forbidding eating certain foods. They were um, in Colossians. They were promoting harsh treatment of the body with man-made rules. It comes out of a sort of Greek thought that the physical world is bad and the spiritual world is good. And so any physical pleasure in this world needs to be shunned. And so Paul counters it by reminding Timothy of just how good God's creation is. God made marriage, and he made the world. It's all there in Genesis 1 and 2, and it is very good. And he insists that really the proper attitude is thankfulness. That if we receive God's good gifts with thankfulness and prayer in our hearts, holding up to the word, then we can enjoy God's good gifts. And I'm assuming that many, if not most of us, did exactly that this last Thanksgiving. Um, isn't it a good thing that we're no longer under the food laws isn't it a good thing that we can receive? You can say amen. Yeah. Amen. Isn't it a good thing that we can receive God's created blessings with thankfulness? Um, and so that was a timely message. And so now it's as if Paul wants to guard against counterbalancing the other way. So there's this asceticism. There's this harsh treatment of the body for no other purpose than to restrain ourselves from anything in this world that could give pleasure. And he doesn't want Timothy and the church to go to the other extreme and become hedonists, pleasure seekers, um, drunkards, and gluttons. And so today, we're going to see the counterbalance, which there is, there is a sort of truth to the aesthetics in that there is a discipline of godliness that Paul wants Timothy to grow in himself. 
and he wants the church to grow in. And we've got to see how that is distinct from asceticism, legalism. And so it's not that we go to the other extreme and simply indulge every desire and every pleasure, but we cultivate a disciplined godliness. And so today's message is titled, Train Yourself for Godliness. We're taking four points. Let's look at the first, is the good teaching. Um, Verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine in which you have followed. And so the, these things that Paul is referencing is, is almost certainly the previous five verses. And then by extension, probably the whole letter. And so what Paul wants Timothy to do is to teach these things to the body. And, and again, we're back to the importance of truth, of right doctrine. The counter to error is truth. Um, and, 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 and belief systems have consequences. You can imagine what it would look like in the church if people were believing that marriage was bad, foods, certain foods were bad, it would affect the way they're living. And the way to combat that is to teach against it, to expose the error. And so Paul raises the priority of good teaching. He wants the congregation taught. He wants Timothy to pass this information on. But there's a cyclical relationship here because the only reason Timothy is qualified for this task is because he's been taught, because he's been a learner. We, we think of our tough men classes. Um, with the theme verse of 2 Timothy 2.2, which says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men will be able to teach others also. And we see four generations of teaching at work. Paul taught it to Timothy. Timothy is teaching it to faithful men who are in turn going to teach it to other faithful men. And the point I want to make is this, is that it's easy to think in, in the spiritual life, when you see someone who's reached a level of maturity, like, say, Timothy here, well, this is easy for Timothy, because after all, he's Timothy. But no, Timothy became the person he was because he had years of faithful training. Um, in the book, Do Hard Things, um, they make the observation that when you, I don't know if you know this, but George Washington, our first president, taught himself trigonometry and surveying by the age of 16, was making, if you take inflation into account, about $100,000, $150,000 a year equivalents to, to our dollars. And you tell that to people, and they say, well, of course he could do that. He was George Washington. But you kind of get it backwards. No, he became the man who he was, George Washington, precisely because of the hard work he put in in his teen years. Timothy became the qualified church leader that he was, Paul's missionary companion, precisely because, we'll see, he had been taught and trained. And and we see that in the second half of this verse. So Paul wants him to set this in front of the brothers, and in doing so, he'll be a good servant. The Greek there is deacon of Christ, having been trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. And so what we see is the, the condition for Timothy doing this and to be that faithful servant is that he's already been trained in this teaching. Literally, the Greek is having fed, and it's a present tense, being fed, on the sound word. See, see, Paul's interested in the spiritual diet, what we're feeding on, what we're feeding ourselves on. And what Timothy is saying is doing is Timothy has a pattern that he needs to continue of feeding on the faithful words and the sound doctrine, which probably those two are meant to contrast the deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons listed a few verses above. And so, because Timothy has a pattern of feeding on truth, and not only does he feed on the truth, being fed by the words of faith and good teaching, he has followed it. And so it's, it's knowing and, and putting truth into our minds and then applying it in our lives. That's what produced a person like Timothy. And that's always what produces godly men and women. Um, the, the secret for godliness is not tricky. It can be hard. It's basically renew your mind with truth and then live it by faith and in prayer and reliance on the Holy Spirit. Timothy's not in some different class. Church leaders aren't in some different class of people. They're simply um, those men, those women who, who by maturing, by seeping their mind in truth and living it, um, we saw that in the qualifications for church leadership a few weeks ago. So there's this good teaching that needs to be taught, And those who are doing the teaching need to have been learners. 
And so it's our desire, even in our Tough Men program, that by training up men, we are training up people who will be able to pass the baton along. And that importance of teaching and following, living it out, coming together. Um, truth bearing fruit, but we'll, we'll get to more of that in a few minutes. So this is how Timothy, then, will be a faithful servant, faithful deacon of Christ Jesus. By presenting these truths to the congregation while all along himself continually feeding on truth, following truth. So we see the good teaching. Next we see the godly training. And here we sort of have a put off and a put on. He, Paul wants Timothy to flee from something, to distance himself from something, and to do something. And whenever you see that don't do this, do this, that's really helpful because there's a relationship assumed. Usually it's the either or. It'll either be one or the other. And so what he tells Timothy to lay aside is have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Now again, this is the second time that these myths have been brought up. Again, back in chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you, going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. And so the, the danger is that novel doctrines, novel teaching, um, superstition will eclipse the truth. There's a danger in Paul's day, and it's a danger in our day. I mean, if you walk into a Christian bookstore, um, there'll be some good books there generally, and there'll be just scads of fluffy distractions. Um, probably, probably the worst one I saw, you remember the Prayer of Jabez fad or craze that was on about 10 years ago, where they had like the Prayer of Jabez for little ones and wee ones and teens with red hair, and you know, they, they had all sorts of Prayer of Jabez books. And one summer, I was just fascinated by this, and I was, I was working at Camp Good News, and I'd get the CBD, Christian um, Distributor Catalog, and, and I would clip out all the Prayer of Jabez stuff I could find. They had Prayer of Jabez prayer shawls, and they had Prayer of Jabez trumpets, and, and the, the, one that, the one that really I just, just thought was bizarre, somebody had written a fake biography of Jabez, and, and somebody else had made a movie of this, and so CBD was distributing the movie based on the fake biography, based on the one verse in Numbers. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying there's any bad content in that, but it just seems like it's a distraction from what is central. Remember, we've just come out of seeing the mystery of godliness at the end of chapter 3. He was manifested in the flesh vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. And it's these central gospel truths, the faithful words, the good teaching that we're to center on. And things that aren't necessarily bad can distract us from that. And we can get caught up in, in other peripheral things, and, and maybe, and who knows, and perhaps. And, and Paul wants Timothy not to, not to devote his attention to that because there's a sort of competitive nature here. We only have so many hours in the day, and everything has an opportunity cost, sort of the economics term. And so if you're reading this book, you can't read that book. If you're spending your time over here, you can't spend your time over there. When you start devoting yourself to these fringe things, you don't have the time to devote yourself to the central things. So rather than paying attention to silly myths, Paul wants Timothy to train himself for godliness training himself for godliness. That word for train is the Greek word gymnazio, which we get our word gymnasium from. It's an athletic sports term. Um, so Paul wants Timothy to train as an athlete for godliness. And what's going to get in the way is distractions, silly myths, fables, speculation, is going to distract him. And this starts to make sense as we think of an athlete who is focused in training. You know, we just had the Olympics, and, and you watch some of those, um, you know, as they, as they'd highlight the different um, athletes, it'd let you know what their, their training regime was, and it's rigorous. It's rigorous, and you know that these Olympic-level athletes aren't spending four hours a day playing Xbox, right? They're not. They're just not. There's a focus that comes with training that other lesser things sort of take to the side. 
And so that's, that's the contrast here. Is, is Timothy could start devoting himself to these fringe doctrines, these, these myths, these genealogies, but it's going to take away from the focus on training himself for godliness. That word for godliness is a word that dominates this epistle. Um, it appears 15 times in the New Testament, nine of which are in 1 Timothy. Um, most recently, if you turn back to chapter 2, Paul wants Timothy to make sure that prayers are raised for all peoples. Verse 2, For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified. Godly and dignified. And what the word means is an awesome respect for God that leads to devotion and piety. It's an awesome respect and awe and wonder of God that leads to devotion and piety. So Paul wants Timothy to train himself to grow in his wonder at God, to grow in his love of God, to grow in his awe of God, and to grow in his living that out. That's what's meant by godliness here. Um, and so before we move on, I just want to draw a couple observations from this that I think are helpful. One is this means then that godliness doesn't come easily, which I think is encouraging. Um, that might sound discouraging, but it's encouraging. It's encouraging for me that if someone like Timothy needs to be instructed and told to do this and to redouble his efforts as much as he already is doing this, it's encouraging to me then because I don't find this easy. Um, people don't just naturally become godly. You'll never read a Christian biography and just, you know, just read that, you know, um, John Calvin just sort of relaxed and hung out, and before you know it, he became godly. You know, Martin Luther, that wasn't his story. And if you read biographies of Christians, that's just not the way it's done. Now, we know that God refines us in the, in the fires of affliction. We know that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, according to Hebrews. Um, and so godliness is not easy. If you drift, you're always drifting downstream. You're always drifting away from the source, and it takes effort to row yourself upriver to get closer and closer to the source. So it, it doesn't come easily, and it requires work. That's probably the next thing. If you're wondering, well, why am I not as godly as I'd like to be? Well, you've got to ask yourself, okay, how much work are you putting into this? By using the athletic metaphor, Paul is indicating this takes, just, just put the comparison side by side. If, if you're an athlete training for excellence, then there's going to be a regime there's going to be order, there's going to be structure, there's going to be days that you don't want to get up at six and go run, and, and you just got to do it. When I was in high school, I wrestled for three years, um, and actually my last year, I made it to state, and, and man, we, we, we had some serious practicing, and I'll tell you, I did not want to do it all the time. We'd practice between three and four hours a day. Um, and I think our coach was a sadist because he just had us running up hills, down hills, running up backwards up hills. I mean, and he just, yeah, it was, it was not pleasant. But that was what was required to competitively wrestle um, in Pennsylvania. I was at military school at the time. And by, by virtue of being part of that team, there were other activities I could not partake of because I just didn't have the time. So I couldn't be part of the art club and I couldn't hang out in the afternoons. My time was spoken for. And so that's what Paul's calling us to. So there's a false asceticism that simply says, by denying yourself pleasure, that's inherently good. That's wrong. But there is a discipline, focused training for godliness, which is very good. It's very good. This call, a writer says, calls us all. And we can see it in its wisdom throughout all of life. The discipline of training, 10,000 hours, enables some of us mortals to run a mere 100 meters in 10 seconds. Years of memorization and study of German may free us to speak Dutch with the best. Hours watching game films can free a defensive back to play with utter abandon. But when it comes to spiritual matters, we hesitate. Discipline sounds too much like legalism. But just thinking that is mistaken. Legalism is self-centered. Discipline is God-centered. The legalistic heart says, I will do this to gain favor with God. The disciplined heart says, I will do this thing because I love God and want to please him. 
Paul knew this difference well. He never gave an inch to the legalists, even while challenging Christians to train yourself for godliness. Paul brought legendary disciplined energy to his service of God, and yet viewed his labor as a product of free grace, reasoning, quote, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me, 1 Corinthians 15.10. Grace is the red blood of a disciplined life. I think it's important to note we can so shy away from legalism, which is good, that we can sort of end up in this do-whatever-you-please. And Paul doesn't tell us the steps specifically to discipline. Um, and then you, that might lead us to legalism if there were sort of rules, you know. Discipline yourself for godliness means getting up at five every morning, and it means reading five chapters of the Bible. And it mean, if there was that type of structure, those would be man-made rules. And so it's up to each of us to figure out what that looks like in our life, what disciplining ourselves to pursue an awe of God, disciplining ourselves to pursue a love of God, disciplining ourselves to know his word, to live it out. It's up to us each to figure it out, but we must pursue it. This isn't an optional instruction. This is a command. And as we'll see, even though it's given originally to Timothy, by the end of this section, you'll see it's for the whole church. So put off association with silly myths. Put on training for godliness. I just want to make one other observation. Godly training, godly discipline, discipline for godliness comes after the mystery of godliness. And that's an important distinction to make. In this book, chapter 3 ended with the mystery of godliness, which is the gospel. And so another error for legalism would be if you skip over the gospel and just get down to disciplined godliness, that, that would be an error as well. So it's important to understand the foundation of godly character has got to be faith in the gospel. But what Paul's getting to is that an authentic faith in the gospel is going to bear fruit and grow itself into a more and more godly life. So the order is important. The mystery of godliness comes first, and the discipline of godliness comes second. Um, We've got to get that order correct. We don't want to tell unconverted people to discipline themselves for godliness. We want to tell them to trust Jesus, to believe in the gospel. But then we don't want to leave them there as babes in Christ. We want to encourage them on to grow in their salvation, to grow in godliness, to grow in loving and revering God. And, and that's an important, important distinction to make. Which then brings us to verses 8 and 9, the value of godliness. And, and it's as if Paul assumes that we may not be too eager to do this. He, he thinks we need some encouragement. And so he quotes here a Christian proverb. This is now our third faithful saying. Verse 9 says this, this statement is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And, and even though in this case it comes after the proverb, we know just again by looking in the Greek with rhythm and meter, which one of it is it verse 8 or is it verse 10 that contains the trustworthy statement? Well, clearly it's verse 8 which says that for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and for the life to come. So this is an early church, again, slogan, statement of faith, proverb, if you will, and, and Paul quotes it as an encouragement to us. And the, the, the proverb, the statement, the trustworthy saying, is itself a contrast. The contrast is with physical training, physical gymnasio, and godliness. And the Greeks invented, um, well, they, they invented the Olympics, obviously. Sport was a big thing there, and Paul knows that. And Paul likes sports. He uses boxing as an analogy, wrestling as an analogy, track and field as an analogy. The point of the contrast isn't to put down training for sports. That's assumed. It's assumed that the culture values that. They valued it in Paul's day. They value it in our day. The point of the contrast is to show relative value. It's to show relative value. This thing over here, Paul says, has some value. It does. And this thing over here has immeasurable value. That's the point. So don't misunderstand as if Paul is slamming sports or slamming athletics. He's not. But athletics and sports have no eternal consequence. They have no eternal consequence. And in this life, they can make our bodies fit. They can train us, teach us discipline. Those are all good things. 
and it can bring a certain amount of glory when a certain level of excellence is achieved. But Paul puts that in comparison with the, the immeasurable value of godliness. So, turning your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 9, Paul makes a very similar statement there. And what this is, is an argument from the lesser to the greater. The argument from the lesser to the greater works something like this. If something is true in the lesser case, how much more true is it in the greater case? It goes something like this. If we can see the value and the worth of devoting hours and hours to athletics, we can see that, right? Um, there are people here who've dedicated much of their time. There are people who have friends. We, if you haven't done it, you know people who have. And we can see the cost of time and energy and focus and commitment it takes to devote yourself wholeheartedly to excellence in an, in an athletic endeavor. So the argument goes, if we can see that value, and we can see the time and the energy people put into that, how much more should we put time, energy, focus, commitment, zeal, determination into pursuing godliness? That, that's, that's the nature of the argument. That's the nature of the slogan. From the lesser to the greater. And so in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24, he makes a very similar statement. Here, using a track and field analogy. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And so again, what Paul is saying is we can see, you can just look at how when people take things seriously, when people value something, we see the lengths that they go to to pursue excellence in it. We, we see clearly the lengths people will go to for excellence in, in, in sports and athletics. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. The problem then becomes when we turn our sights over to pursuit of the knowledge of God, pursuit of godliness, do we see anything even remotely close to that level of commitment and zeal? And, and I'm sure in some cases the answer is yes, and praise God for that. But, but can you imagine what the church would look like if, if people were willing to spend two or three hours a day as they would in a sport studying the Bible? in prayer, fasting, spiritual disciplines. And then all of a sudden you start to see maybe, maybe the priorities are off. And again, the issue isn't to, to value sport less, but to raise up the value of godliness. That's, that's the point here. It is not to put anything down, but to lift up the value of pursuing godliness. And so this proverb contains with it a promise, which is meant to motivate. Um, it says in the ESV here, for godliness holds a promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, at this point, I, I don't think the ESV translates that very well. And most of your translations are going to take it the same way. The King James nails it, as does the Darby Bible translation in the Weymouth New Testament. Um, anyone who's following along in the Greek can verify this. But literally, literally it says, godliness is possessing, is holding a promise of life, the now and the coming. And so that phrase, life, the now and the coming, many of the translators translate as this life and the coming life. But the problem with that translation is it doesn't tell you what the promise is. It just tells you that godliness has a promise for now and for later and doesn't really help us out much. But, but literally, it just reads, the promise is life, now and coming. And this, this fits in with Paul's theme in, in, uh, in 2 Timothy. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. 
There it is. The promise of life. When you think about Jesus' earthly ministry, especially in the Gospel of John, and how many times it is said, I came to bring life. Whoever drinks of this water will, will have a well springing up to eternal life. Whoever has the Son has life. The promise of godliness is life. And this is meant to motivate us. And so we've got to take a moment and think about, okay, in what sense does godliness promise life now? And in what sense does godliness promise life in the future? And, and how does this work together? And how is this supposed to motivate me to value growing in a reverence and awe for God that leads to godly living? Well, basically, the way that it holds a promise is this. It's the fruit of faith. So the gospel promises life. We saw in 2 Timothy 1.1 that this life is in Jesus Christ. Um, think of John chapter 1. In him was life, and the life was the light of the world. So the life that is promised by godliness is the life that is in Christ. So it's not that living a godly life gets you life, but rather that living a growing godly life confirms, proves, evidences your faith, and thus evidences the life you have in Christ. And this is an important distinction to make. The growth of faith, the living out of faith, does not save but the living out of faith evidences the faith that saves. You with me? Good works don't save. Good works growing out of faith point back to, prove, authenticate the faith that saves. And so as we grow in godliness, we have great comfort and assurance. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is a common New Testament theme. There, there are many ways of, of having assurance of our salvation. There's the testimony of the Holy Spirit, testifying to our spirits that we are indeed children of God. There's the love of God poured out into our hearts, according to Romans 5. But far and away, the number one New Testament test, proof, verification of salvation is a growth in grace. We're going to see these themes lined up here in, in, in 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 3. Through his divine power, he has granted to us all things that pertain to life, here it is, and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, just pause there. What he said is this. God has given us two things. One, everything we need to become godly. He's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And he's given us the promise that we can become more like him. So you've got the tools, you've got the promise, right? Now keep reading. Verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort, you could almost put in there, train, to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So what he said is, okay, you've got faith build upon it, live out, grow in these areas, the fruit of the Spirit and love and godliness and self-control. Why? Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he is cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, you will richly provide for yourself an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 10. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. How do I make my calling and election sure? How do I confirm that Lord Jesus, before the world began, chose me. How do I confirm that I am a child of God, born again, indwelt by the Spirit? The answer is, grow in grace. You see that? 
if these qualities are yours, and increasing. There's another key concept. It's not as though Peter set a bar. And if your godliness is above this bar, then you must be a Christian. And if, you know, if it's below this bar, you're not. Rather, what trajectory are you on? Are there signs of spiritual life? Is your faith growing stronger? Is your zeal for Jesus stronger? Is the fruit of the Spirit growing greater and greater in your life? Is your hatred of sin growing? Is your war against sin stronger? These are the questions. Are you growing? Are you training yourself in godliness? If the answer is yes, if you're growing, praise God. You confirm your calling and election. That's, that's the answer. This is, this is Peter's answer. How do you know you're a Christian? Because I'm growing in grace. It's not the only answer the Bible gives. We've, we've seen the Spirit testifying with our spirit, the love of God put out in our hearts, an experiential testimony. But the works and the growth in holiness are the number one go-to point in the New Testament to confirm our salvation. And so going back to First Timothy and godliness then helps us understand this, has a promise now. See, as we grow in godliness, it promises now that we're Christians. It promises now that we have fellowship with God. You know, 1 John 1, 7 promises, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so we have life now. It's not just that we have to wait to have eternal life. We have it now. Now we have peace with God. Now we have new hearts. Now we have his spirit living within us. Now we have his word. Now we have his body, the church. We have life now. And then we're, we're going to have life then. And it's going to be so much better. And the proof, the, the verification of saving faith is this growth in godliness. And so when we see this growth in godliness, it promises in the one who has it that they have life now, that they will have life in the age to come. It doesn't save you, but it's the verification. If you plant a tree in your backyard, it bearing fruit proves its health, proves that it's not dead. And so that's the argument here. And so the early church had this as a motto, as a slogan, as a trustworthy saying. The point was this. We see... The energy, the time, the commitment, the zeal, the focus in which athletes focused on excellence will devote to their field. We see that. And oh, if only God's church would devote that same energy or zeal or greater zeal to the pursuit of godliness. For in doing so, you will have abundant life now. And in doing so, you will, you will assure yourselves the life that is to come. This might sound hard and dour and difficult, but it's, it's a joyous life. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon yourself. It is easy. There is a yoke. There's work to be done. But it's, it's the joyful, holy, wonderful work in fellowship with God. I was talking to a brother just a few days ago who is in a season right now of, of not zealously doing this. And, and as I was asking him about the fruit that his rebellion was bearing, and the rebellion was the word he called it. He was being very honest with me. Um, I said, what type of fruit is that bearing? Is it, are, are you filled with more joy, more peace, you happier? The answer was no. He found obedience difficult, and so he wasn't obeying, and yet... His disobedience was no easier. In some senses, it's a harder master. He was more miserable. He was more discouraged. He was more down than ever. And so, praise God, uh, as I was talking to him, he, he confessed that he wanted to do what was right. He wanted to obey. And, and, and we talked about how we could help him do that. And so, praise God for that. But obedience can be hard, but, but disobedience can be far, far harder in its consequences. And so... We need the encouragement to pursue Godliness. We need it because it doesn't come natural. It's not what we naturally want to do. But there is life now. There's life to come that is testified by our obedience. Um, the, the verse that God used to convert me, or really the verse that God used to get me lost so I could be saved, says something very similar. You don't, you don't need to turn there, but 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. 
says, By this we know that we have come to know him, that we are keeping his commandments. The one who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. And then a little later in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us. Eternal life. Abiding, remaining in Jesus and the promise of life coming together. We're saved by the faith that unites us with Christ. We're, the mystery of godliness, remember, came before the discipline of godliness. And it's faith in the gospel only, plus or minus nothing that saves us, that unites us with Jesus Christ. But faith that saves will be faith that becomes lived out in life. And, that, and that's the point he's getting to now. That's the point he's getting to now. So we've seen the good teaching, the godly training, the value of godliness, and finally, the global task. And, and it's, again, as though Paul can't mention this promise of life. He can't mention the gospel without sort of broadening to his, his life calling. And so he closes this section by saying, For to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. And here Paul ratchets, ratchets up the terms even more. We've seen already this training. Now he's toiling and striving. The word for striving is the Greek agonizo. We get agonized from this. And so Paul says, towards this end, this promise, because this promise is out there of life, and Paul's looking out at the church, and he's looking out at the world, and he's seeing people who are dead in their sins and trespasses heading to eternal death. And he knows there's this promise of life available. And so he says, because of that, I strive, and I toil, and I agonize. Paul, Paul's not playing Xbox. Paul's not getting distracted. He's focused. And he's focused on the, the Great Commission. He's focused on this promise and it reaching people. Um, Titus 1.1 says this, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords to godliness. Paul says, why am I on planet Earth? I am here for God's elect. I am here for the people who will come to faith. And I'm here for their godliness that accords with their faith. See, Paul wasn't simply a missionary who wanted to get people saved and sort of left them where they were. But do you see his passion, not just for the salvation of souls, for the growth in grace of those who are saved? I mean, this man is in jail writing letters to churches. We saw a few weeks ago how he lists his concern for the churches as his number one pain and agony. Because Paul isn't simply just, just get him saved and then don't worry about it. But the Great Commission is about making disciples. In Matthew 28, there's only one verb in that verse, the Great Commission. One finite verb, one command. Make disciples. You do it by going. You do it by baptizing. You do it by teaching them to observe. There's not four commands. There's one command. Make disciples. Discipleize the nations by going, by teaching, by baptizing. And Paul, this is Paul's pulse. He wants to make disciples. And he, you you got to evangelize to make disciples, but that's not good enough either. You got to take those who are saved and you've got to train them up and build them up and encourage them along. And this was his passion. He says, I strive for this. I agonize for this in his own life, pursuing godliness. And just look at the concern he has for Timothy and the church at Ephesus. This whole letter is written in case he's delayed. I mean, what if, what if, He's thinking, what if I get delayed? This is too important to wait. These errors are creeping in. The ascetics are getting a foothold. The church order isn't being run the way it's supposed to be. And, and this is too important to wait. I, I'm going to send a letter just in case I'm late. And we get this inspired book of the Bible because the Apostle Paul wasn't content to just get people saved. But he, he, he 
yearned, he longed to see them grow up in the faith. Because there's this promise of life. He wants them to have life now. He wants them to have life in eternity. So he wants them to grow in godliness. I mean, and this, this just ties back to the opening verse in 1 Timothy. I left you in Ephesus to have certain people stop teaching. Then verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. That's what I'm concerned about. Stopping the teachers from teaching, the false teachers from teaching, is just a means to the end of love. It issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Paul wants Timothy to share these things with the church. He wants Timothy himself to continue feeding on Scripture. He wants Timothy to continue disciplining himself for godliness. And he wants the church to do that. And Paul's whole life is dedicated to this mission. And I hope you're starting to see is the importance of priorities for godliness. Because I'm sure everyone sitting here can sort of nod their head, yeah, godliness is important. But again, you get back to the opportunity cost. Because our life can get crowded with so many lesser things. The good is the eternal enemy of the best. The good is the eternal enemy of the best. And we can fill our lives with good things. Neglect the best things. That's the whole point of this proverb. That we devote the time that we would to anything else that we thought was important. And we know what we do. We have different hobbies, different things we enjoy. And you can look at the amount of time and energy we spend on them. And what God is saying through Paul is, would you please devote that level of attention, that level of zeal to knowing me more, to loving me more, to living out God in this more. And in doing so, you're going to enter into a fuller life now in, in greater fellowship with the Father and greater fellowship with the church. And you're going to gain greater and greater assurance of the life to come. And, and Paul says he's agonizing and striving because he set his hope on the living God. And this, again, links with that promise. If the promise is life, well, who else but the living God can grant such life? Paul says, I'm banking everything on that promise of the gospel. I'm banking everything on the promise of life. I agonize, I strive, because I've set my hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Savior of all men, especially those who believe. And this, again, gets back to Paul's global vision, which we saw earlier in chapter 2, where he wants prayers made for kings and for rulers, for all people. Why? Because God desires all people to be saved. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So God wants all people saved. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. And here, God is the Savior of all. Now, it's important that Paul adds the further clarification. Or we could end up in universalism. Well, if God's the Savior of all, then all must be saved. No, he's the Savior of all in the sense that there is only one Savior for all men. The Lord Jesus Christ. If, if you need saving, if you're bearing the weight, the burden of your sin, the wrath of God is abiding on you, if you don't have peace with him, there is only one Savior for you. There's only one place to look who is the way, the truth, the life. The Lord Jesus. He's the Savior of all men and that all are invited. And all who come will be saved. No one will be turned away. And all who come, once they come, are, are not going to be snatched from his hands. He's the Savior of all men in that sense. But at the end of the day, the Lord Jesus only saves those who have faith in him. And so in that sense, he's especially the Savior of those who believe. So there's a Savior for the whole world. And there's a God who we've seen wants the whole world to come. And there's a sacrifice given for the whole world. And at the end of the day, the only people who will benefit eternally from that sacrifice are those who believe. And, and this is what gets the Apostle Paul out of bed in the morning, is there's a gospel, there's a promise, there's life available for all who will come. There's water free of charge will be given without measure. People are perishing every day. And so he's bought into this package deal of not just getting them saved, but getting them discipled getting them to grow in their salvation. Focusing. You get back to this athletic metaphor 
of just a single-minded focus. There's a living God who's made promises, and there's a gospel of grace, and that's what he's living for, and that's what he's doing, and he's sharing his faith, converting on the one hand, and then here he writes a letter to those who are converted to build them up even further. This is his passion, and consequently, it's God's passion writing through Paul, and he wants it to be our passion. That's really where we end here, is is, is this our passion? I mean, I mean, no one's going to speak ill of godliness, but it's very easy to sort of politely tip your hat to it and then go throw your life into other things. And godliness gets the table scraps as we pour our lives into other things. And so the question I just want to close with is this. Is I just want to challenge you, challenge myself, to do an evaluation of our life. If, if I were looking at my life, if someone else were looking at your life, what would they conclude is your passion? What would they conclude is the thing you value most? Where do you spend your free time? Where do you spend your money? What do you think about? What do you talk about when you have leisure to talk? What do you dream about? What would truly make you happy if only you had it, if only you could do it? Because that's going to reveal what our passion is. As we order our lives around the things we love. And this passage is all about challenging us to believe by faith that the value and the reward of devoting time and energy zealously to pursuing a love of God and, and godliness in our life is far greater than anything else this life can afford. There is, there's good things in pursuing other things. But the, the good is the eternal enemy of the best. And we can waste our lives devoting them to good things and neglect the best things. And it's the Apostle Paul's desire we wouldn't do that. It's God's desire we wouldn't do that. So let's pray and ask him that he would maybe show us where good things have eclipsed the best thing. Lord God, we want to have this heart that values God in us, but Lord, if I'm honest, frequently this is not my greatest desire. Frequently, the things of this world eclipse my love for you, take my heart. And so, Lord, we just, I pray, we pray that you would show us any areas in our life, Lord, that we treasure, we love, we prize more than you. That you would give us a zeal and a commitment to pursue, aggressively of pursue, knowing you, loving you, obeying you. Lord, that we want the life that you have to offer. We want to live that life now. We want fellowship with you. We want fellowship with your son. We want the Holy Spirit working through us and in us. We want the life that only you have to offer. And so, Lord, um, help us to be devoted. Help us to cast aside those things that slow us down and entangle us and run hard after you. In Jesus' name, amen.